0: The Gentiles rage, and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear away their fetters, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. My holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son or do homage to the Son lest He become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. But oh, how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Now, quoting Psalm 2, the early church in Acts 4, they pray in such a way that shows how the raging and the plotting of God's enemies is in vain. If you remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have gone... Before They had been brought before the council for boldly proclaiming the gospel. And the council pretty much told them, as we've never been allowed to say in our house, they told them to shut up. And they couldn't find a way to actually uh, punish them, so they, they released them. And Peter and John go back to the believers in the early church there. Acts 4, it says, The believers lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And here they quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now the point of that citation from Psalm 2 is that the raging and the plotting of Christ's enemies is in vain. Why or how is it in vain? The very next verse, as they continued praying, said, Because truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, along with all the peoples of Israel, that implicates everyone, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, the enemies of Jesus, they rage in vain and they plot in vain because all they're plotting, predestined by God. The very rage coming out of their mouth was scripted long ago, and they think they act sovereignly, but there's only one sovereign, and it's not them. Now, Jesus is king over all, and he's coming again with all divine authority to bring back his kingdom, and and as we wait for the arrival of that kingdom, we do so knowing that the raging and the plotting of the wicked, which we see every day around us in every form of media, when we're thinking, oh no, the church, what's going to happen? Totally futile. All the raging and the plotting, futile. But as the very last line of Psalm 2 states, those who take refuge in Jesus will be blessed. Because he is the shelter from the wrath of God. And by the blood of Jesus, he not only provides victory, but peace for those of us who trust in him.
1: 125. sing together, 125.
2: not doing bad. It's only 10 after 11. I thought we'd be further behind than that, so this is good, especially considering that I intend to be brief and uninteresting this morning, and so we've got time to kill. (laughs) This is not a complaint against another church. This is a compliment to you all, even though I'm going to compare you to an experience I had yesterday. And I just want to tell you all about it briefly. I did go to John's memorial service yesterday. And I won't mention the church, but I think you could all figure it out. It's a large church. It's a mega church. It's Smyrna's largest, most imposing church. And so I went there yesterday to go to the memorial service And the first thing that I was struck by, and I've been there a few times, Tom and I have been in there, but the first thing I was struck by was how cavernously large it is and how genuinely lost I was, (laughs) because I didn't know where this service was being held. I expected it to be a fairly small, intimate thing, and so I thought that it would be in some small room there. So I went to the the main center there. And even though there was activity in that room, that wasn't where the memorial service was. So I stood in the doorway looking lost, looking as lost as I could look. I don't know how to look more lost. I was looking around, trying to figure out what was going on, holding my umbrella. I clearly don't belong there. And I'm looking around, and there are maybe... 70 people milling about. Not one approached me or asked me if they could help. So I started wandering the halls, and I found a woman, and I asked her, do you know where the memorial service is being held for John today? She said, yes, I think it's over in the cafe. Oh, we don't have a cafe. (laughs) But apparently the service was going to be over in the cafe so she gave me directions to the cafe so I went there and even though there was food prepared there there was nobody there so I thought well this is not where the memorial service is so I walked down toward the auditorium they don't call it a sanctuary there are signs everywhere pointing you to the auditorium and so I walked toward the auditorium and I thought This is probably where it's going to be held. This is fine. This is good. There were five men standing on the steps approaching the auditorium. And those five men were chatting with each other. So I walked up and looked again, just as lost as I could possibly look. And I tried to make it obvious that I was trying to get their attention, that I would like to ask a question. Just ask if maybe this is where the memorial was. Two of them looked at me. None of them spoke to me. I walked through the middle of them to walk into the auditorium. And there were signs that said, Memorial for John Jones. And so I thought, oh, great. I'm in the right place. And I have to say, I was really pleased and impressed at the number of people from Smyrna who came out to support John and Chuck, that was a beautiful thing. I was very glad that I was there for that. And I was glad that I was there for Chuck. But by the time I left there, I couldn't help but think, I prefer GCA. (laughs) Because the thing that people say to me most frequently when they come here to visit is, the people there were just so nice to me. The people were just so kind. People were just coming up and introducing themselves. And people were just, I would have thought that out of the hundreds of people that I passed yesterday, that someone would have said something, but not a word. So that's a compliment to you, that we are like a church. We act like a church. And then yesterday, we went to visit Betty and Karen And we took communion to Betty and Karen. And Betty started complimenting GCA and saying, this is how a church ought to be. And then I went to see Marilyn. And Marilyn was there with Luann. And Marilyn was complimenting the fact that so many people from church have come to see her. And she gets cards and she gets chocolate and people are coming to see her. Just thank you for being the kind of church that the Bible actually describes. Thank you all for being the way you ought to be as Christians so that the demonstration of genuine Christianity exudes out of this body of people. It makes me so very proud and deeply, deeply emotional to say that I get to be a part of you. Wow, I get broken up. Because I got to see the demonstration of what church, though it was big, though it was, though they had all the money, they had enough money to make Solomon blush. They had so much money and just demonstrating their wealth. And yet the people just were very clicky and very stayed to themselves and would not speak to somebody who was clearly lost. So I just wanted to start this morning by saying thank you to all of you. So like I said, that's not supposed to be a criticism of them as much as it was, by comparison, a great compliment to you all. All right, turn to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is concentrating on talking about false prophets who had infiltrated national Israel historically. And one of the ways that he could identify false prophets was that they would say things that just wouldn't come true they would claim that they were speaking for God but they were actually introducing heresies and we talked last week a little bit about what that means anything that is not centered on anything that is not concentrating on God's word and what Christ has done for his people Anything that leads you away from the very word of God, the declaration of the prophets and the apostles of God, anything that steers you away from that falls under the category of heresy. And that's why we just keep pounding the Bible here at GCA because I don't want to be guilty in any way of taking you away from God's word and what God has already said, what he has laid down for his people. That's what is of primary importance. So Peter said the same way that there used to be false prophets among the people, there are still false teachers today among you. Now he was writing, and I have to stress this again, he is writing to the diaspora, He is writing to Jews, believing Jews, who are outside of Jerusalem. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Is this obvious yet? And he, being a thoroughgoing Jew, is still going through the process of transitioning from his law-keeping that he grew up with and then coming to understand salvation by grace through faith where you read in Galatians, where Paul had talked about Peter, how Peter had eaten with the Gentiles, but then once some came from James, Peter dissembled and acted like he wasn't eating with the Gentiles and acted like he was still just keeping with the Jews and and was following the law of the Jews, which would not allow him to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, so that shows you some of Peter's internal conflict. Peter still has a certain amount of law in his head. He's still got a lot of Old Testament legalism in his head as he's coming to understand what Christ has done fully and completely for the people he has saved. Because Peter is very, very influenced by Jewish writing, And a couple of weeks ago, remember, we looked at the book of Jude, and we saw the similarities between Jude and Peter. We saw how Jude was even quoting from the apocryphal book of Enoch. And so, Peter and Jude and any thoroughgoing Jew is really familiar with all of the Jewish literature that would influence the way that they write. That was a long way of saying, Peter's about to say something that's really controversial. And you have to decide whether he is saying this as a declaration of things that have actually happened. Have there been people who embraced Christ, who were free from the world, who had left the impurities of the world for Christ and then went back, or is he giving a typical Hebrew warning? That's the mindset that Peter is writing in here. When Peter talks at the end of chapter 2 about those who have been delivered from the defilement of this world and then end up going back to that defilement, he's going to say it's worse for them now than it was at the beginning. It would have been better for them to have never known Christ than to have known a little bit and then gone back to the world. But you can read commentary after commentary that will argue about this next section we're going to read And argue about whether Peter is saying this is a reality, that the teachers, the false teachers, knew some of Christ and were delivered from the impurities of the world. And then they went back. Or was it the people that they fooled? Those people came to know a little bit about Christ and then they went back. Or is it just simply a typical Old Testament Hebraic warning? I fall into the third camp. I believe it's just a warning that Peter has written to say, if you know Christ, if you have embraced Christ and have been delivered from the defilement of this world, and then go back to it, that you're worse off than you ever were. You'd be better off to have not known the truth than to have known the truth and rejected it. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, that was all introduction. I'm still introducing. I'm still trying to get you in the mindset of what Peter is about to say earlier when I said I plan to be brief and uninteresting mm-hmm. I lied mm-hmm. okay well, two bad. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 2 2 Peter let's just start reading right at verse 1 that will bring us up to speed to where we're going to pick up the new material false prophets also arose among the people "...just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words." Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. So if all that's true, verse 9 says, then God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires and despise authority. They're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these people... These people who revile angelic majesties, who are daring and self-willed and don't tremble at God or authorities. But these people are like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. And they will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. "...having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, they have loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet." Okay, let's take a breath right there. (laughs) Peter is telling you not only that there are false teachers who are bringing in heresies, but also they are doing it because of their greed. They are doing it because they desire followers that they can heap to themselves. But it's good to know that God has got their judgment waiting on them. Remember what Jeff said this morning about the fact that an absolutely sovereign God utilized the hatred of men who would say, I will not have this man to rule over me. They're going to throw off the shackles of God and his Christ. And then God in the heavens laughs at them. And God in the heavens says, I'm going to set my king on my holy mountain. That's just the way it's going to be. Get used to it. And then you go to Acts and you see the fulfillment of that, that Herod and the Gentiles and Pilate and the Jews, they were all gathered to do whatever God's hand predestined to be done. That's a really important concept. God, in his absolute sovereignty, has control over even the wickedness and the evil of these people who are bringing in these destructive heresies. Now, you might ask yourself, and you'd be wise to, you'd say, well, then what's the purpose Why does he let destructive heresies into his church? If he loves his people and he separated his people from the world, why would he allow anybody to come in and bring destructive heresies? Paul writes about it. And Paul says that the reason that the destructive heresies come in, the reason that people come in teaching other than the true word of God is so that those who are approved can be made manifest. In other words, when you go into a jewelry store and you're going to look at a diamond, does the jeweler hold the diamond up to a light so that you can see the diamond? No. He puts it against a black backdrop. He puts it against a piece of velvet so that you can see the shine of the diamond. It's that dark backdrop that makes the diamond all the more obviously valuable. Well, Paul says that's the same reason that God is allowing that sometimes these heresies come in so that those who are approved are made more manifest, so that you will cling all the tighter to the truth when you hear it, so that you will separate from the crooked sticks and follow after the straight sticks. So God in his sovereignty even brings glory to himself in the midst of these people who are doing evil things that, as Jeff said, God predestined to be done. The most evil thing that ever occurred on planet Earth was that wicked men slew the Prince of Life. And yet they did exactly what God not only intended to have done, but he prophesied they were going to do it. So that Jesus, when he resurrected again, could say to his apostles on the Emmaus Road, Well, it's written in Scripture that all these things had to happen. Didn't it say that the Messiah had to die and that he had to raise again? Didn't it say all that? God had already prophesied that everything Christ did was what Christ had to do and that the evil people who killed him were predestined to kill him. That's why the Old Testament says that someone who shared bread at Christ's table was going to raise his hand to betray him. That's why Jesus could refer to Judas as the son of perdition, because even the pernicious things that he did were the things that God had predestined he would do, because God is sovereign. I don't know how many times I have to say that, or how many ways I have to demonstrate it. God is absolutely in control. So Peter could say, there have always been false teachers. There have always been false prophets, but God knows how to deliver the righteous, from their temptations and God knows how to preserve the condemnation of the false teachers so that they are going to end up under judgment and then Peter reduces them to nothing but brute beasts and Peter says the same way that brute beasts are slaughtered for sacrifices before God they're going to be condemned before God because God has reserved their judgment since the beginning The same way that God has preserved your salvation and your place in heaven since the beginning, he has preserved their judgment and it waits for them. It's not sleeping. It's not dead. It's very present and very alive. They're just getting away with it right now. So they think they'll always get away with it. But the judgment is real. So Peter says, That they're not doing things out of knowledge. They're not saying these things out of revelation. They're saying it out of instinct, which I just find fascinating. Because I think, having listened to lots and lots of preaching out there, I listen to lots of sermons, both people I agree with and people I disagree with. And you can turn on the radio, turn on the internet any day, and you can hear sermons where by the time you're 15 minutes into it, you think to yourself, I could say that. (laughs) If you're just making stuff up, I could make up stuff like that. Why are they doing it? Because they instinctively know this attracts people. They instinctively know this is going to feel good to people's flesh. This is going to give them that sense of, I'm great, I'm doing well, up, up, up with people. And then people are going to flock to their church and bring their wallets and give them a big edifice because they just instinctively know that this is what is going to feel good to people. And so he says, like brute beasts, they're acting on instinct. Let's talk about instinct for a moment. Because recently, Janine and I watched a video that was perhaps the most nightmarish moment in nature I've ever seen. I don't know if any of you have seen this video, but it's from the Planet Earth series. And it was lizards born near rocks. And the minute they're born and pop their head up out of the sand, they're immediately chased by a plethora of snakes. And I mean like a lot of snakes. I'm not talking tens and fifties here. I'm talking hundreds of snakes. Snakes that climb rocks to chase these babies. The amazing part is the minute the babies are born, before they're taught, they don't even meet their moms or dads. From the minute they peek their heads above the sand, they know instinctually the first Instinctually, is that a word? Instinctively, they know the thing to do. The first thing they do is run. They get up and they run. <laughs> they run like the Dickens. They run as fast as their little lizard feet can go. And then snakes just come out of everywhere. There's just snakes. It's the stuff of nightmares. So they. Followed on camera one little lizard who was just running his face off and, and a snake trapped him, cornered him so that other snakes could attack him and they wrapped around him and this little guy somehow squeezed his way out and then started running up the rocks and the snakes tried to follow but he was quicker on the rocks than they were and he got away. Okay. My whole point in bringing that story up is how did he know that he's just been born? Nobody taught him that, but he knew how to outwit hundreds of snakes by instinct. He just knew immediately, instinctively, this is how you survive. Same thing Peter is saying here. These guys like brute beasts, these false teachers, these false prophets just know instinctively how to appeal to people, how to bring people to themselves, how to make themselves wealthy because they're driven by greed. Where does that greed come from? It's instinct to human beings. We just naturally love ourselves way too much. And we just naturally, without anybody having to teach us or tell us, we know that the whole world is all about us. We know it from the moment we're born. All you moms who have had kids, you know that when that baby is born, the only thing it knows instinctively is how to cry and get your attention. All they know is me, me, me. I'm hungry. I need to be comforted. I want more sleep. Me, me, me. And then that's human beings for the rest of their life. Their natural instinct is me, me first, my ego, my pride. I need to be a leader. I should have people follow me. I'm greedy. I want more stuff for me. Well, Peter says that is the instinct that drives these people. Verse 12 says, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed reviling where they have no knowledge, they have no understanding of godly things they have no knowledge of the word but they're willing to say anything it takes to get people to follow them but they are unreasoning and they have no knowledge and yet they're gathering followers to themselves. But they will, in the ultimate destruction of all these brute beasts, they're also going to be destroyed. So instinctively, what do they do? Well, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. That means... They just enjoy partying. They enjoy reveling. They enjoy drinking. They enjoy their drugs. They enjoy their sex. They enjoy just living as fleshly as they can possibly live. And they don't even do it at night. They do it in the daytime. Mm. And yet, notice he's saying, but these are the false teachers. These are the people who revel in the day and then teach people apparently something religious So that they can gather people to themselves, so that they can introduce them to heresies that take them away from the Word of God. They're like brute beasts. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, but they are stains and blemishes. This is part of Peter's natural Hebraism. In the Old Testament, When you brought animals to God to sacrifice, you couldn't bring animals that had any blemish or any stain on them. And so Peter picks up that language and says, even though they would put on that they are serving God, the truth of the matter is they are stained. They are blemished sacrifices. They're actually in it for themselves. They're not even acceptable for God. So they have stains and they have blemishes and they are reveling in their deceptions as they, now not just reveling, as they carouse with you. What does carouse mean? Eat, drink, and be merry. To live the way the world lives. What would you say, Gladys? Anything but work. Anything but work. (laughs) But they're greedy. Verse 14 says they have eyes full of adultery, and they never cease from sin. That sounds to me like Stephen in the book of Acts when they were stoning Stephen, and he said, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, there are people who will read things like that and say, well, see, Stephen said you do always resist, so it proves then that the Holy Spirit is resistible, so that proves free will. But the truth of the matter is, if you always do something, then you're not free to do the other thing. If you always sin and always resist the Holy Spirit, then you're not free to choose Christ. Then you're not free to accept the things of God. They do always sin because that's all they can do. That's their nature as brute beasts. Is to do nothing but sin continually. Which is why they have eyes full of adultery. And they never cease from sin. Never. Enticing. So now they're gathering people to themselves. They're enticing unstable souls. Because they have a heart trained in greed. And they are accursed children. So then he brings up Balaam and he says they're forsaking the right way and they've gone astray having followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor. Uh, You know the story of Balaam. Balaam was enticed to curse Israel for enough money. Balak the king came to him and said I'll give you everything. I'll give you half my kingdom. I'll give you plenty of money. Just curse Israel for me. This mass of human beings is coming toward my land. This is not good for me. Please curse them. And Balaam attempted every way he could, even though God said, you can't curse them because I've blessed them. And even though Balaam had to keep going back to Balak and saying, I can't do anything except what God allows me to do. And God has blessed them. I can't curse them. But Balaam kept looking for a way. He kept engaging it because he wanted the money. Okay, well, that's the exact same thing here, that these false teachers have forsaken the right way and they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, because they love the wages of unrighteousness. They know it's unrighteous. They know they're operating on instinct rather than on knowledge. And yet they're willing to do it because it makes money. Have you ever heard the argument, and certainly I've heard it a lot. I've heard it more times in my life than I want to. You know, they must be right, whatever group we're talking about. They must be right because look how many of them there are. (coughs) Right? And you all, you're you're in that little building up the street. How can you be right? Because those people up there, they got a whole lot of money. And they got a whole lot of people and they got a whole lot of political power. And so that means that they must be right because they're attracting people. Well, look at Peter here. He's saying, yes, they attract people and they're driven by greed as they're attracting people because they love the wages that come with unrighteousness. They love the money that comes with unrighteousness. I have a friend up in... Troy, Michigan, I haven't spoken to in a few years. He has a, uh, a center up there where he deals with people, addicts, mostly crack addicts. And it is a completely Christian enterprise because he believes the only hope that an addict has is to understand the things of Christ. And so he was successful enough in that enterprise that eventually the government came knocking and they said that they would like to give him some money. They'd like to support what he's doing because he's actually keeping people out of jail and turning people back to work. And he's actually having success in what he's doing. And they said, "Uh, yeah, we'd like to support you. We'd like to underwrite your, the process here because it's really working well. However, once we pay for it, you have to extricate the Christianity part out of it. Oh, no. you, you can keep doing what you're doing for these people, giving them a job and making them work and giving them a place to live. You can do that. But you have to take the Bible and Christianity part out. He wisely said, no, because the Christianity part is why it works. It works because Christ changes people. I only bring that up because the government thought they could eradicate the Christianity by paying him the wages of unrighteousness. They brought money because money entices people to do things. And so they brought money and they were going to give him wages, but those wages would include extricating Christ from the whole thing. Well, then those are the wages of unrighteousness. And he wisely said no to it, and to this day still exists on gifts and offerings and people underwriting him. The wages of unrighteousness. But look at verse 16, talking about Balaam. But Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression from a dumb donkey. That doesn't mean stupid donkey. I'm of the opinion that most donkeys are stupid but from a dumb, from an unspeaking donkey. I find it funny that Peter had to point out that donkeys don't talk. (laughs) But he received his rebuke from a donkey that doesn't talk when the donkey spoke to him. And I just, I love the story. I'm amazed that Balaam kept riding the donkey because the donkey was trying to avoid the angel in their path because an angel with a sword was trying to stop him from going to do what he was going to do, which would include the cursing of Israel. The donkey saw the angel. Balaam didn't see it. The donkey tried to pull aside, and it rubbed his leg apparently up against a stone wall, in it, and he rebuked his donkey. And that donkey talked back and said, Haven't I always been your donkey? Have I ever done this before? The donkey was more logical than Balaam was. It's a great story. Go back and read it one day. Notice, by the way, that Peter took that story literally. Notice that Peter, who's been taught by Christ, did not even question the veracity of the story. Because I know a lot of people who question the veracity of the story and say, well, that's just an allegory. It's just... It's just a Bible story that you teach the kids in Sunday school, but that's not real. Peter says it's real. It actually happened. Why did it happen? I think it's because, as Peter has already said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Balaam was on his way to do something against God. God stopped him via his animal. He, Balaam, received a rebuke for his own transgression For a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. What was he doing that was so mad? What was he doing that was so insane? There's a good place, Alex, since you were talking at homecoming about insanity. There's a good reference to insanity right there. What was the madness of the prophet? God had already told him that he could only bless Israel and not curse them. God has already spoken, and yet he wanted to go his own way and do his own thing because he wanted the money. Let's apply that, shall we? God has already spoken. We've already got a Bible. It already includes the words of God for us. And yet, before the day is up, you'll start thinking it's up to you. God has spoken, and once God has spoken, once God has laid out his will, his testament, his desire for his people, once he has laid it out, if you and your silly little head start thinking anything else, you're insane, that's madness, that's craziness, because the one who has life and death in his hands has already prescribed what your life ought to be about. what are you doing thinking you know better you're crazy well that's what he was doing Balaam was thinking I can probably sneak something in and at least get some of that money so he was doing the opposite of what God intended for him and therefore God spoke to him through a donkey which restrained the madness of that prophet These false teachers are like springs without water. What's the purpose of a spring without water? It's a hole in the ground. It's a a ditch. It's not a spring. You wouldn't say to somebody, come be refreshed at my spring. There's no water in it. Have at it. (laughs) These are springs without water. They are misdriven by a storm. For whom the black darkness has been, look at the last word, reserved. God already knows who they are. God in his sovereignty is in charge. God already knows he's going to judge them. And the outer darkness that Jesus talks about, the being away from the light of God, being away from the preservation and the grace of God, being cast into outer darkness, Peter says here, That's already reserved for the false teachers. That's already reserved for false prophets. Because they speak out arrogant words of vanity. That's a good combination of words. They speak out arrogant words. What are arrogant words? Boastful words. Words that say me, I'm important, more of me. And then vanity, which again is Me, it's all about me, I'm vain, I'm self-centered, I'm egocentric. So they speak out arrogant words of vanity and they entice, how? Not by wisdom, not by knowledge, not by the word of God, they entice people by fleshly desires, by sensuality, and they entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. How do they do it? Verse 19, promising them freedom. Just this morning, I have a habit on Sunday mornings of listening to NPRs. The only time I listen to it is on Sunday mornings because there's a, a word game on there. And I like words. I don't even know the name of the show. I've listened to it for a couple of years. I don't even know the name of the show. As I'm finishing getting dressed and getting my tie on and getting ready, I listen to it because I just like the word play. And there was a commercial in the middle of that about some hyper-gnostic self-help guru. That would be the only word I could find for it. And one of the words that she strung together in the middle of her gibberish, in fact, at the end of the commercial, I actually turned to Janine and said, she said nothing, it was like a full minute of her saying nothing. But in the midst of her saying it, she said freedom a couple of times. The freedom of the individual, the freedom of the person, the freedom of the And I thought that's so funny. That's what Peter talks about. That they're promising you freedom. Promising you individuality. Promising you complete independence from God. And any kind of rules or any kind of strictures on your life. You'll be free. Just follow me and I'll give you the formula for freedom. Except the people that are promising you that freedom are brute beasts who have no knowledge or understanding of the things of God. And listen to this. They themselves are slaves to corruption. Why? Because as we've already read, they're sensual. They're fleshly. They're self-willed. They're full of arrogance and full of vanity. So they're slaves to their own fleshly corruption. And by what a man is overcome by this, he's enslaved. You get that? Whatever it is in your life that takes possession of you, it owns you. And if some philosophy, if some false religion... If some false teacher gets a hold of you, they own you, and they will demonstrate it by the way that they, Peter has already said, by the way they abuse you, the way they make merchandise of you. They own you. Now, this past Tuesday at Men's Group, we were reading in Romans 6, and and I know that that's immediately where Micah's mind went, because Paul writes the exact same thing in Romans 6. Turn over there for just a moment. Paul is writing in Romans 6 about not letting sin reign in your mortal body so that you would obey the lusts of it. That whatever you are enslaved by, whatever you are engaging in, whatever you find unavoidable, it controls you. It has mastery over you. Let's start reading at verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead and is never to die again. So death no longer is a master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be a master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Well, may that never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience Resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God. That though you were slaves to sin. You became obedient from the heart. To that form of teaching to which you are committed. And having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. I like that phrase. Servants of righteousness. Sold out completely to righteousness. Owned by righteousness. But these false prophets, these false teachers here in 2 Peter are wicked people. They are arrogant people. They are vain people. They are driven by their fleshly desires and by their sensuality. They're promising you freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And if you follow after them, you're likewise going to be enslaved to their corruption. And now Peter pulls out a word that only appears here in 2 Peter Do you know this English word? Do you know that English word, miasma? If you look it up in the dictionary, the first definition is something that gives off such a scent, such an aroma, a bad scent or aroma, like a skunk, that everything around it is affected by the aroma. And then the secondary definition of it is something so corrupt that it corrupts everything around it. Okay, now that's the English word miasma. The Greek word in English letters is exactly that. It doesn't change at all. It was not translated into English. It was transliterated into English. And verse 20 is the only place that you find that word in the whole Bible, But Peter chose that word specifically to say, if you're hanging around with these false teachers, the corruption that is in them will affect you just by virtue of you being around it. It's a miasma. For if they have escaped the defilement of the world, which is what they would claim, They would claim as false teachers that they're going to set you free. How can they set you free except to believe that they've escaped from the defilement of the world by the knowledge of Jesus Christ? But if then they become entangled again in those same defilements, the word defilement is the word miasma. The miasma of the cosmos by the epigenosis of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ if they have really, genuinely, truly escaped that miasma and come to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but then become entangled again, which they can't help but do, well then if that happens, the last state is worse for them than the first. Because after all, if they hadn't known anything about Jesus, if they hadn't been aware of what the bible says if they didn't know some portion of the good news if they didn't know that then they wouldn't be rejecting that but because they know it because they have the knowledge of it because they're aware of it and then they reject it because of i'm going to use this word again because of this miasma because of this defilement that's within them this defilement that reeks so badly that it affects everyone who's around them well, because that's the fact, they're going to go back to the way they've always lived. They're going to go back to their defilement. Why? Because it's a true proverb. And he's going to quote right out of Proverbs twenty-six, eleven. It's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow or a pig after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Is there anything more futile than washing pigs? (laughs) I have one one thing. I used to live in Detroit, and I used to have to shovel snow during blizzards. Equally futile. But you can wash up a pig. You can scrub up a pig. You can, take a, you can make him shiny clean because you're taking him to the fair. You can put a collar on him and make him look good and give him a name like Porky. You can take him out and present him publicly. Look at my nice clean pig. The minute you get him home, where's he going? To the mud. To the mud. <laughs> Why? Because he's a pig. Or, anybody here own dogs? It's one of the grossest things dogs do. They throw up and then they eat their vomit. (laughs) Why do they do it? Cats don't do that. Why do they do it? Birds don't do that. Why do they do it? Sheep don't do that. They do it because they're dogs. That's their nature. That's who they are. That's what they're about. That's why they do it. So these false teachers... Might pretend to be sheep. They might act like sheep. They might walk around talking about, "Bah." But in the end, they're going back to the mud, they're going back to the way they've always lived. They're going back to their lasciviousness, they're going back to their greed, they're going back to their ego, back to their vanity, they're going to go back. Why? Because they're pigs and dogs. They're not sheep. Sheep follow sheep know the voice of the good shepherd christ gave his life for the sheep christ never said i gave my life for pigs and dogs so peter draws a real clear distinction here and says yes there's false teachers yes there's false prophets but god is sovereign and he is holding their judgment in reserve They are going to be cast into outer darkness and don't follow after their lasciviousness because they revel in the daytime and they act in a way that's completely egocentric and they act like they might have some knowledge, but they've got no knowledge, which you would know if you knew your Bible, you would recognize that they are not teaching anything that's genuinely biblical So then you would recognize them as not sheep. You would know that these are pigs and dogs so that it shouldn't be any surprise when they return to their dogness and their pigness. They can't be any other way because they're dogs and pigs. Does that make sense? Yes. Am I talking to myself up here? No. no, So how are you going to know the difference? We'll get to chapter three next week. How are you going to know the difference? The difference is obvious if you know the word of God. If you know what the Bible says, then when somebody comes along and tries to hoodwink you with something else, you're able to say, I don't believe that's biblical. Or show that to me in the Bible. And if they say something like, well, it's not exactly in the Bible, it's sort of implied in the Bible, there they go. That's that wiggle stuff. That's that, well, it's implied, or I can allegorize, or I can... I can twist the word like a wax nose until it fits me right. And I can try to make the word of God say something it doesn't really say. You need to know what the Bible says, or you're just going to be willing fodder for these kind of people who are brute beasts, who are driven by greed, who are just trying to assemble people to themselves. Have I said anything that Peter hasn't said? No. Have I exaggerated his words beyond what he was trying to say? Well, then the warning exists. That's my point. This is a warning. It's typical of all the Old Testament warnings. It's typical of the Jewish warnings. The warning is it would have been better for them to have never messed with this. They'd have been better off to leave the word of God alone. But because they introduced these heresies, so that they could attract people to themselves in their greed, the end for them is going to be worse than the beginning was. That's the warning. Questions?
1: Does that mean their punishment is going to be worse?
2: I would say so. I don't know how to read it any other way. Yes, George?
1: I think there's still a difficult possible contradiction, and I know you're going to explain why it's not a contradiction, But my translation says they have escaped defilement through their knowledge of God. Yeah. And then it seems as though it says, and then they backslid. Right. you preach many times about how you can't backslide. Right.
2: Well, first off, you've introduced the word backslide, which you don't find anywhere in the New Testament. (laughs) So that's sort of not a New Testament concept. But I understand what you're getting at are again entangled in... Again entangled in the stuff of the world. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's why at the very beginning I said, one of three things is true of verse 20. Either Peter is describing false teachers who actually came to know Christ and then rejected him, or Peter is describing the poor unstable souls that he's referenced who have been drawn away by the false teachers so they once knew Christ but then had been drawn away we wouldn't be comfortable with either of those because it doesn't fit with the rest of Peter's theology the rest of Peter's theology is about God's sovereignty and salvation so we're going to have a big theological dilemma if we say Peter is actually describing real people who fully embraced Christ and then fell away of their own supposed free will that would be a difficulty or He's just putting out a warning the way the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 puts that warning out. It's impossible to restore such a one if you take that as, well, then such a one exists. The writer of Hebrews was saying, no, such a one can't exist because it's impossible. Well, I think that's kind of what Peter is doing here. It's a very typical Jewish warning system that you find all the way through the Old Testament that says, If this were to happen, if this was the outcome of it, it's going to be worse than it was at the very beginning. So I read it more as a warning than as Peter describing an actual situation that could happen because if he's describing an actual situation, he's denied himself. He's contradicted himself. You may read it differently, but that's how I understand it. Yes, sir, Sandy.
0: Judas might fall into this context. Judas, in my opinion, was a person who was chosen. Uh, Well, I'm not sure if he was chosen. But Judas Judas was one of the twelve. But if he was chosen, he was chosen not for salvation, but he was chosen uh, to betray the Lord. And it was was God's will. So Judas knew the truth. And some may say he fell from it. I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that would be an assumption to say Judas knew the truth. Because in the book of John, we read that when, when the precious ointment was spilled over Jesus, John tells us, parenthetically, that he was a thief and he carried the bag. And so he wanted to sell the perfume for more money because he wanted the money. Okay, that, that makes him a greedy individual who's stealing from the group. So you have to say, well, we're told here what his personality is. Is that somebody who actually has embraced what we would call the truth? So, since Jesus refers to him as a son of perdition and says, Father, I haven't lost any except the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled, well, then you have to say God always knew that he was the son of perdition who would do the betraying. And since it was prophesied about him that he was going to do that, would God have really given him the truth, put his Holy Spirit in him? saved him, and then said, okay, now that I've saved you, I'm I'm going to condemn you. I don't think he he would do that. So from that, I have to conclude then that Judas probably never did embrace the truth. And remember that Judas actually committed suicide before Christ's resurrection. So the essence of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, is something Judas never even knew. So I would say that he was always (laughs) destined to be exactly who he turned out to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of like you were always destined to be the person you turned out to be. But
0: it's safe to say that he, he heard it, I guess, honey.
2: But That's a really good point. And preached it. And preached it, yeah. And perhaps even did miracles when they went out two by two doing the miracles. But what does that show you? Yeah. That shows you that all that stuff is not salvation. Exactly. Salvation is Christ, Christ alone. Okay. Salvation is the result of election An election by God's grace since before the foundation of the world. And even if on this earthly plane you can demonstrate miraculous powers, that's not a demonstration of salvation. And, And he walked and talked with Jesus. And he heard Jesus speaking and still didn't get it. Still wasn't saved. That's election. I mean... There are people who hear any of us in this room and reject it. But he rejected Christ directly. Yes sir, Dwayne. So carry on with what he just said. Yes. Yeah, here's the way I would answer that. Because you said, can we say it's that guy down the street who preaches free will? If I, and this was a conscious decision I made years and years ago. If I started pointing out every error, I'd never get around to telling you the truth. Because there is so much error. So, can we say the guy down the street that's preaching free will? Yes, maybe. Maybe. I don't know what his background, his tradition, his upbringing is. Maybe out of ignorance he's doing what he's doing. Maybe out of greed he's doing what he's doing. I don't know. I'm not his judge. He answers to God. Mm. But when I see and hear error, can I point it out as error? Yeah, absolutely. But if I'm going to start setting up judgments on people, that's just not my job. So God's got that. Say it again. He's describing a saved individual or an unsaved individual? An unsaved individual. Yeah, I don't know how you could say that a saved individual reveled all day and was lascivious and had eyes full of adultery and full of greed. And I, I don't know how that would be a saved individual. Hmm? With destruction reserved. For them. With destruction reserved for them. That's kind of a clue. He's not saved. Yeah. <laughs> And that is exactly why I leave that to God. I don't have the jurisdiction or the power to go around judging everybody who doesn't do it the way I do it. Oh, there's the obvious ones. Yes. The obvious ones are just blatant. But a long time ago, I decided philosophically that I would just hand everybody a straight stick. That's why we talk sometimes here about straight sticks. If you have a straight stick in your hand, you're going to recognize every crooked stick because you just compare it to your straight stick. And so I decided rather than running around saying, that's crooked and that's crooked and those people are crooked and that's crooked, all I have to do is tell you the truth. And if you've got a hold of the truth, you'll be able to compare the truth to every crooked thing. And I don't have to point at everything. Anything else? Good conversation. Good questions. Yes, Renee. Yeah,
1: but for Christians, we're all still learning. I mean, there, we don't know everything about the Bible. And, you know, uh, we backslide sometimes. So
2: how does it go for us? I mean, yeah. you do exactly what you're doing right now. you be among the saints. you be among people that have got more years invested in it than you. And you listen to the truth as it's being taught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you come across anything that sounds like it could be error, don't buy in. It could be error. Wait until you know what the truth is. Yeah. Make sense? Mm-hmm. But just keep doing what you're doing. Be among the saints and keep learning. And few of us are infallible. And very few.
0: <laughs>
2: you said that quite fallibly. Um, did you ever hand up, Micah? Yeah.
1: The example you used earlier about your friend in Michigan that has the rehab center for crack addicts, I mean, that seems to be an example of, of what uh, Peter is talking about here. Obviously, he's talking about it with false teachers, but in the sense that these are individuals who have been delivered from a defilement of the world, i.e. crack addiction, and have benefited from the teaching of the gospel of Christ and have been delivered from that, I'm sure, in the, in the same example that Peter uses, There are those among those who return right back to their vomit. So that can be a benefit to even people that are not believers temporarily in a situation where they're under this type of actually gospel teaching.
2: I agree. I agree. If the church is the preservative of the world, then there is a benefit to just having the truth among you. True. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bill, do you want to say goodbye to yourself?
1: Bye, Bill.
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time When we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.